Last week, we asked the question, why did Jesus have to die? Now, what we learned last week was that he didn't actually have to die because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus had no sin, so he had no requirement to die. He chose, however, to die in your place so that you would not have to face God's judgment. Of course, we'll all physically die, but as we sang just a few minutes ago, the sting of death has been removed for those who are in Christ. For the Christian, death is now just the gateway into the presence of God. Today we're going to ask, how do I benefit from Jesus' death? Pray with me, please. Lord, today we do want to examine that because, Father, if if Jesus died for me in my place, then, Lord, I need to know how it is that I can get his righteousness counted to me and my sin counted to him. So, Lord, uh, I, you know, it's... We don't know how all that works. It's somewhat of a mystery. But Lord, you've revealed in your scripture enough for us to understand it. We can't understand the depths of the beauty of it. We can't understand all the glory of your plan. But Father, we can see from scripture how you can be both just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Christ. So Lord, help us learn that today. And Father, help us not just to learn it in our heads, but Lord, if there are those of us who have not taken hold of that glorious gift that you have offered, then Father, I pray that we would take hold of it today. Lord, again, not with just a mental uh, assent to the truth, but Lord, a life-changing revelation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today we're going to talk about how do I benefit from Jesus' death. This is a big deal, and we touched on it last week. God cannot be just and holy and simply overlook sin. Sin must be paid for either by you or through Jesus' sacrifice. Romans 3 23 through 26, let me read that to you again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now I know that some of you may have stayed up late last night worrying about a storm, or some of you may have stayed up late last night being without air conditioning and power like I was. I don't sleep too well when I'm hot. Uh, But... You need to stay awake for this (laughs) because, not because I wrote a great sermon, but because God wrote some incredible truth that we're going to look into today. So uh, if you fall asleep, tell your neighbor to nudge you. All right, I wanted to read that whole passage so that we could get the context, but let's examine that last part again because it tells us how do I benefit from Jesus' death. 
His death made it possible for God to be at the same time just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the question is, how can God count me as righteous when indeed I am not? That was a tremendous question that Martin Luther had to struggle with. Uh, Martin Luther was, was destined to be a lawyer before he was saved. Well, he got saved big time, didn't he? From, from lawyer to uh, reformer. Now, Martin Luther knew there was a huge problem because he knew that we had to be counted as righteous, but we're not righteous. If you follow me around or ask my wife or my kids, they'll tell you I'm not righteous, but God counts me as righteous. So how could that be? I hope that you are going to hear what the Lord has to say here. Because there are some religions that teach that Jesus was a good man, that he was a prophet, maybe even that he was the first and the highest of the created beings of God. And uh, there's tons of other heresies that you can think of that talk about who Jesus is that is not in line with the biblical revelation of who Jesus is. But unless he was God in the flesh, God could not be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, I'll pay, if, if I pay for my sins myself, what does that require? It requires for me to spend eternity in hell. And yet Jesus paid for my sins and for every other person who has ever placed their faith in the Savior throughout the history of the world He paid for their sins in the span of a few hours. Only one of infinite, infinite worth could have accomplished that. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The next question that we need to ask is, how do I appropriate this justification? How, how do I get credit for it? Because you see, if I had a rich uncle, and I, I know all my uncles and none of them are rich, but if I had a rich uncle that I didn't know about, and he died and he had written in his will that I was to receive his entire estate, let's say it was millions of dollars. Well, if I didn't know about my uncle, and if nobody knew about me, then I couldn't get the benefit of that money, even though it was there, right? I have to actually know about it. Somebody has to read the will and call me and tell me, hey, there's this long-lost uncle, and you just inherited a few million dollars. I wouldn't know, and if I didn't know, I wouldn't be any richer next week than I am today, right? Because I haven't gotten it yet. I haven't appropriated what is coming to me. And so what we need to talk about is, how do I lay hold of this gift that is offered to us, this gift of forgiveness and redemption and eternal life. The currency of spiritual life is faith. Romans 3.26 says, It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of who? The one who has faith in Jesus. You know, misplaced faith is what got us, humankind, in the trouble that we're in today. 
Adam and Eve were told by God that they could eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden freely, but there was one tree that they were forbidden from. Now, instead of enjoying all that they were given, instead of enjoying the riches that God had provided for them, He gave them a perfect situation, uh, perfect physical bodies. He was in constant communication with them. It was, it was perfect surroundings. And yet, what did they do? They focused on the one thing that was forbidden to them. And ultimately, they chose to place their faith in the word of the serpent rather than placing their faith in the word of their creator. Genesis 3 tells us about this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Now that has been his uh, scheme for a long, long time. The reason that he doesn't change up his method is that it still works. So when he is trying to get you to doubt the word of God, he will say, did God actually say? I mean, after all, do we really have an accurate Bible? We don't have the manuscripts that were written by the hands of the apostles. Surely there's been error introduced, right? He will try to get you to doubt the truth and the goodness of the word of God. So he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, God didn't say they should not eat of any tree in the garden. He said, you can eat of every tree in the garden except this one, right? So if he can't get you to doubt scripture, then he'll twist scripture like Satan just did here, okay? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did he say that? Well, we know he didn't say that. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, maybe God said, don't touch it. I don't know. That's not recorded for us in scripture. It may be that Eve was saying, hey, we're not supposed to eat of it. And then she made up, oh, we're not supposed to touch it either. I don't know. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So there's a progression here. There is questioning the word of God. There is twisting the word of God. And then there's flat out denial of the word of God. So Satan says, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now they had a choice. They had a choice about where to place their faith. Would they place their faith in the God who had given them life, placed them in a perfect environment and taken care of their every need, or would they doubt God and instead place their faith in the word of the serpent? Well, we know that they chose poorly. What about you, though? What would you have done? If you had been in the Garden of Eden, what would you have done? Do you realize that every time we sin, we ratify their decision? So it's easy to say, hey, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have taken that fruit and eaten it. 
But the problem with that is every time you choose to sin against your creator, you're adding a vote to, to what they did already, right? So I think we would have fallen just like they did. So now you can place your faith back where it belongs, not in the word of the serpent, but in the word of God. Now what is faith? Let me ask you. Is it mere intellectual assent? I mean, I believe in George Washington, don't you? But I don't believe in Jesus the same way that I believe in George Washington. I believe George Washington was a guy who lived and and did some good things and helped us found this country. But I'm not trusting him to do anything for me right now. He is dead and gone. So my faith in Jesus is a very different matter. It's more like the faith that you place in an airplane when you get on the airplane. All right, you might be scared of flying, but if you actually get up, walk up a little rickety ramp and get on a big piece of metal that is going to take off in the air, a real heavy piece of metal, right? And you think this thing is going to fly me from here to wherever I'm going. And you actually get on there and sit down, you are placing your faith in that thing. Why? Because you are trusting that you're going to get from point A to point B and not die. You're trusting everything you have to that airplane. This is more like the faith that we have in Jesus. We don't just simply think about it and say, you know, there's a bench over here. I think that that bench would hold me up. But you know how I find out if the bench will hold me up? (laughs) I go over here and I sit on the bench and we see if it holds me up. Okay, that's placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just thinking some things are true It is placing all that you are and all that you have on the hope. And I don't mean hope like, oh, I hope so, I'm going to cross my finger. But the anticipation that that he will do everything that he has said he would do. We're going to look at next week what the resurrection means. And I'm going to give you a preview. The resurrection means that every single thing Jesus said and did and claimed is indeed true. So it's not merely intellectual assent to some facts. Guys, I think that's how people miss heaven. They sit in an auditorium like this, listening to the Word of God, and in their head they go, I agree with these propositions. Yet if it doesn't change who you are, then it doesn't do the intended thing. The gospel has to change who you are. It has to take a dead person and bring them to life. You know that illustration that, that I've used that I stole from, uh, from J.D. Greer says, hey, if I came in here a few minutes late to service and I said, I'm sorry, I got hung up. I was trying to beat a train at the railroad crossing and I didn't quite beat it. And I, you know, I got up there and it hit my car and knocked me half a mile down the track. But anyway, uh, I got a ride. I called a cab or whatever and I'm here now, right? You would say, man, you are delusional Because if a speeding train hit you, you'd look different than you do right now, right? That's what the gospel does. When it really gets into you, it changes who you are and it changes what you are. It changes how you look. It changes how you approach life. It changes everything fundamentally about you. It changes your marriage. It changes your parenting. And so there are some people that sit in places like this and they hear the gospel and they make a mental assent to the facts that are being spoken and yet it never gives them life. 
they remain dead. That is not what we want to do. Faith is the way to grasp that. Now, where does faith come from? The Bible tells us where faith comes from. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the word says, For by grace have you been saved through faith. All right? That's what we've been talking about. You're saved through faith. Now, here's where it talks about where it comes from. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you have faith, if you have saving faith, that is wonderful. But it's not something that you get to boast about. You know, I I had to wrestle with this because I have a couple of brothers who are not believers. And so I had to ask myself, why am I a believer and my brothers are not believers? Um, Well, there's one answer. It's because of God's goodness. It's not that I'm a little smarter. It's not that I'm a little more moral. It's not that I had enough sense to realize you walk in if it's raining, right? You come in out of the rain. It's none of those things. It's because of God's graciousness toward me. And that makes us uh, humble. You know what I mean? When we look down on people that don't understand the truth, when we look down on people who are not believers, when we look down on people who make stupid decisions and mess up their life, if we really understand grace, it will keep us from doing that because we'll realize that if it weren't for the grace of God, there I am. So grace comes from God. It is a gift of God. Now, faith is too. So what does this faith do for you? Number one, it gives you peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Look at it with me. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know you may say, peace? I didn't, I didn't know I was at war. <laughs> well, you may not have felt like you were at war, but let's see what the Bible says about it. In Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Are you thinking that you may come to God when you get your life straightened out? I've heard that from people. I've shared the gospel with people. And they have said to me, you know, when I get a few things taken care of, when I get this thing or this thing settled and and worked out, I'm going to come and I'm going to become a Christian. Well, there's one huge problem with that. You will be dead and in hell before that ever happens. How do I know? Because Romans 8, 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay, one one verse back, Angie. I want us to see that. Sorry. Romans, yeah, here we go. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So, if you know someone who says, I'm going to become a Christian, I'm going to start coming to church, Once I get myself straightened out, they cannot, is what the Bible says. So we are to to get that faith if God gives it to us. We're to exercise that faith, and then God will straighten us out. You are getting the shotgun by the wrong end if you think, I'm going to straighten myself out, and then I'm going to come to God. And it will have horrible uh, ramifications, just like grabbing that shotgun by the wrong end would. Come to God as you are. And plead for his mercy. 
That's the only way that a sinner like me could have come to God. And it's the only way that you can too. And it's the only way that your friends and relatives can come to God. We looked last week at how our sin caused an irreparable rift in our relationship with God. Irreparable by us, but indeed repaired by Jesus when we place our faith in Him. So by placing our faith in Jesus, we can have peace with God is the first thing. The second thing that we can have is the forgiveness of sins. John, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. We said that He is both just and the justifier. This reiterates that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember, we already covered how God can be just and still forgive your sins if we place our faith in Jesus. Then it says that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? I know that all of us that have grown up in church have heard that story a number of times. When the son comes to his senses and goes back to his father, not as a son, because he knows that he is no longer worthy to be called a son, but he goes back to his father in order to be one of his hired workers. What does the father do? How does the father receive him? Luke fifteen twenty through 22 tells us. It says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. If you approach God like the prodigal son approached his father in humility and repentance, then then he will receive you with joy. You know how the father ran, he saw him and he ran to him and he embraced him and he clothed him and your heavenly father will will receive you with joy and clothe you in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That brings us to our next benefit of what faith, saving faith will do for us and that is imputed righteousness. Now, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul was probably the most foundational influence in my theological thinking. So please listen carefully as he explains this concept. We're going to turn down the lights a little bit and we're going to hear this. So R.C. talks kind of quickly. So so listen so you don't miss a word of this. Jesus Christ. That's good news. 
Amen, that's good news. All right, so uh, R.C. dropped a couple of of little Latin phrases in there. He said that's what Luther said, that was, that that righteousness is an istusia, meaning alien, alien. So when Luther was writing, he was writing in Latin, and he said this is an alien righteousness. God told you that Luther was confused. He was saying, how can God, who is right and perfect, say that I'm just when I'm not really just? And that's what Luther had to grasp in his mind was that this is an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from, uh, R.C. said, extranos. That means apart from me. There's a righteousness that is counted to my account, but it's not my righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness that I get credit for. Now, R.C. said that that's true, but does the Bible say so? Uh, we can listen to great Bible teachers, and we should, but we got to make sure that they're telling us the truth. So what does the Bible say about this? In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, my, I guess, favorite verse of Scripture, it says, For our sake He made Him, that is, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that, here it is, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The next benefit that we get from this saving faith is the assurance of heaven. We can know that when we die, we will go to heaven. Guys, I've talked to people. Mother Teresa, right before she died, she said, I just don't know. I don't know if I've done enough to get to heaven. I know I've not done enough to get to heaven. So let me tell you, if I get there, it's going to be because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that was imputed to me. And I don't doubt that I'm going to get there. I know I will, but that's not bragging on me. That's bragging on my Savior. The assurance of heaven. Look with me in John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus didn't just come to show us the way. He came to be the way. So if you place your faith in Christ, then the Bible talks about how you are in Christ and how Christ is in you. If you are in Christ, then right now you have the life of Christ, which is eternal life. You know, I hear some people say sometimes that, well, you can lose your salvation. Let me think through this with me. If I gained eternal life, last year, and I didn't, it's been a few years, but let's say I gained eternal life last year. Let's say next year I lost eternal life. How long did my eternal life last? Two years. Two-year life is not eternal life. Once I have, once I am in Christ, I have life in Christ, and that, that life is eternal life. If you are in Christ, then you've secured that life. We sing a song called Before the Throne of God. And the reason I love this song is it tells this truth. 
It says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Check this out. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. So your, your security, your salvation, that this faith, if you take hold of it, can give you, is that you will be in Christ. And Christ will be in you. And if you are joined together with Christ, you have those benefits. You have His righteousness counted to you. So why can no tongue bid me depart from heaven? Because I'm in Christ, and that's where Christ is. Faith has a conjoined twin, though, that cannot be separated from it, and that is repentance. Repentance means turning away from sin and turning toward the righteousness that is commanded by Jesus, who is the object of our faith. Let me read a quote from you from a wonderful publication that I highly recommend to you. It is called Table Talk Magazine, and you can get it for a very economical price, and it is a wonderful resource. That's Table Talk Magazine, in case you're taking notes there. All right. Here's the quote. Although we often distinguish faith and repentance for the sake of instruction, they are actually inseparable. They are two sides of the same coin, so to speak. Christ calls us to give up everything to follow Him. And that includes our sin and any attempt to earn favor from our good works. True repentance does not mean sinlessness in this life, but it does mean a full reorientation of one's direction and love of self and sin, a marked turn from what opposes Christ to Christ Himself. Repentance and faith were inseparable in the teaching of Jesus. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So our question is, how do we get, how do we lay hold of the benefits of Christ's death? That is how Jesus tells us right there. Repent and believe in the gospel. So if you are like the prodigal son and you have run away from your heavenly father, you can come home to where you'll be accepted, loved, and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I invite you to do that today. When that son came home, he had been living in filth and poverty. He had been feeding uh, the pigs for his master. Now that's something that no Jewish boy would want to be doing. He didn't want anything to do with pigs. But he was out there feeding the pigs and he was thinking to himself, I'm so hungry, I can eat some of this stuff. And then he comes to his senses and he goes, why don't I go back to my father's house? I'm not worthy to be called a son, but at least I can be a hired servant. Well, he comes back and he gets a reception unlike anything he could have ever dreamed of. That father ran to him and covered his filth 
with a brand new beautiful robe. That's what God the Father will do for you. If you come to Him in repentance and faith, He will clothe you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So there will be not a, not a bit of dirt on you anymore that can be seen because you'll be clothed in that righteousness. So you know when I was talking about Martin Luther, trying to figure out how in the world can a righteous, holy, just God consider me just? Well, it's because He trades your guilt and your filth and your sin puts it on Jesus Christ who paid for it at the cross and He takes Christ's life of righteousness and perfection and credits that to your account. You know, we've talked about before that I have the solution for poverty. If you are living in poverty, let me tell you what to do. Marry a millionaire. That's all you got to do, right? (laughs) And you may say, well, it's easier to say than to actually do because there's not a millionaire around every corner that wants to marry me. Well, in this case, there is. There is one of unlimited wealth and resources whose name is Jesus that will indeed join himself to you and give you all the righteousness that you could ever need. That's what R.C. was saying a few minutes ago. And so you can have that. But how do you have it? Again, it doesn't do any good, right, if I give you a, a present and you don't accept it. If I hand you a suitcase full of money and you say, oh, thanks for the thought, and then you leave without it, It didn't do you any good. And today, if you're here and you say, you know, I believe all that stuff. I hear what you're saying. But I don't think I've ever really placed my faith in Jesus. Now, how do you know? Well, you know because of what the Bible says. It says a good fruit fruit will be yielded by a good tree and bad fruit will come from a bad tree, right? So if nothing has ever changed in your life, if you don't love the Lord Jesus, if you don't pursue righteousness, I don't mean if you're perfect. If you're perfect, you need, to, you need to get out of here and quit listening to me because I'm not perfect. But if you're not pursuing righteousness, then you may need to take a second to go, you know, I'm not sure this thing traveled from my head down to my heart. I'm not sure I actually have experienced the grace of God. If that's you today please don't leave here without talking to me. That's just craziness. Folks, we could have a tornado tonight and you could not be here next week. Don't leave here today without coming and speaking to me. Because the truth is, you can have have that new robe. You can come in your filthiness and your sin and you can come to the Father and not be rejected. You know, a lot of us fear rejection. That's why some of us won't share the gospel with people. Because we think, hey, if I go share the gospel with somebody, they might reject me. They might close the door in my face. Well, folks, you don't have to face any rejection when you come in repentance and humility to Christ. He will run to you and clothe you.